Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, the Iowa caucuses have long been prized as the ultimate test of retail politics. But the 2020 presidential race, like everything else in politics, is getting very, very nationalized already. And we're going to talk about how that helped launch the campaign of Beto O'Rourke last week and how it's affecting the campaign of Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, who's really trying to run in Iowa, one state south, as the senator from next door. Plus... We are getting a sense of the early White House strategy when it comes to dealing with investigations by the new Democratic House majority. Ignore them. We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in this strategy or non-strategy by the White House and how unusual it is and what exactly about all these investigations Democrats have just launched actually scares the Trump White House. As always, we are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday. Today, that's March 21st. So it's all up to date as of then. No Mueller report yet, no indictments this week, nothing of that nature, at least as of our taping. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests. We have in the studio, as usual, senior politics editor Charlie Mutessian. Charlie, good to see you. Hi, Scott. And national political reporter Elena Schneider, fresh off the trail in Iowa. Good to see you, Elena. Thanks for having me. All right, so our first data point today is $6.1 million. That is the amount of money Beto O'Rourke raised in the first 24 hours of his presidential campaign, which launched a week ago today. And that number is pretty good. Uh, In fact, it's the best we've seen from anyone so far, probably ever, actually. Uh, I don't know what the 24-hour numbers have been in past campaigns, but we talked last week about how big digital campaigning is now compared to before. So I think it's probably the biggest, uh, certainly, online number ever. $6.1 million in 24 hours. And this speaks to the big national following that uh, O'Rourke built as he was running for Senate in in 2018. Uh, Now, Elena, you wrote a little bit about this in in your most recent story from Iowa because you were there covering a different candidate. You were covering Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota. And you you got a chance to see her and O'Rourke actually cross paths in Iowa, but but you also got this this look into just how different and diametrically opposed their strategies are. That's right. So I um, actually want to sort of put you guys in a time machine and take us back to sort of a pre-internet age in which um, you would see presidential candidates come to Iowa and you'd learn about them on your local newspaper, on the news that you would watch at night, and that's how you like would, would meet them and get to know them and like showing up at events. That's obviously the way that we've seen presidential campaigns run for decades. And um, that's something that when you were from a center next door, I mean, if you were next door neighbor to Iowa, that actually really helped helped you. It sort of was an easy line in. People were already familiar with your name. You sort of had a fluency about the issues. And there was just sort of a familiarity that already existed there. 
um, Senator Klobuchar would have benefited from that if if we were uh, if she was running for president back say twenty years ago, but we're not. And instead, so I showed up um, on Saturday to see her do a canvas launch with um, the state senate candidate Eric Griddens, who was um, the uh, most popular Democrat in Iowa last weekend. Had just about every single presidential candidate come and try and help him out on that race, and she launched a canvas uh, a canvas launch inside the Blackhawk County Democratic headquarters. Standing room only crowd, but definitely like fit comfortably into this into this uh, headquarters. And then two hours later, Beto O'Rourke shows up and uh, the crowd was so enormous that they ended up spilling out from the headquarters and had to actually hold it in this massive parking lot, empty parking lot next next to the headquarters. And he filled up that block and then it you know, it fed into other ones. So that's sort of a, a perfect encapsulation of sort of what the difference here is like when you've got a senator who has spent a ton of time in Iowa, who knows Iowa. Um, her sister lives in Iowa, like just has so many connections to the state and yet cannot seem to attract the same kind of crowd that a political celebrity has done because the familiarity that sh- that he's been able to build via Instagram. And I mean, at this point, I've seen like the inside of his mouth. Like we know Beto O'Rourke better than we probably know most politicians. And, and it sets the stage for a very different way of campaigning and strategy going forward. Charlie? I kind of love this time machine uh, idea. <laughs> I, I can't help having it rattle through my brain. You know, back in that time, all the Boston sports teams would have sucked, which would have been great. Uh, <laughs> you know, the the political class would have been very different. Nobody would have known who uh, uh, Eric Giddens were. You know, there wouldn't have been Twitter. <laughs> there wouldn't have been this kind of uh, nationalization of, of of politics. I mean, I think I think that's kind of brilliant to look at it that way. I mean, I think a lot has changed, not just in the mechanics of politics, but also. Uh, I think in in the way uh, that we've become more nationalized in our elections, more polarized. I mean, you know, I guess what it's also known as ideological sorting. There's a number of different names for it, but you're right. I mean, we've also become more homogenized as a people. You know, you don't see the the regional distinctions that we used to have, uh, and you certainly don't see it in in Iowa because just just to Elena's point, take a look at you know who's won. In the last, I guess the the more modern era, in the, let's say the last twenty years, if you look, go back to. 2020, who's won in Iowa? Uh, 2004, John Kerry uh, carries Iowa over a Midwesterner. Uh, There was a Midwesterner in the field. Now, Obama's kind of, you know, arguable. Does he count as a Midwesterner? Yes, he's from a neighboring state. But to me, he's not like Amy Klobuchar, uh, neighbor. He was a national candidate when he ran for president. He never ran as a Midwesterner. He ran as the guy who had the amazing speech in 2004. And that was not like an Illinois-based candidate. That was a national candidate. But he did have the benefit of getting a whole bunch of volunteers who were able to just drive over the Illinois border into Iowa and help him out. Not saying that I think that you're right in that he was hardly a Midwestern candidate. Um, But, you know, there there are little things on the fringes that I'm sure probably helped him. Right. I think it's interesting that, you know, as as especially as as we look kind of below the the candidates who are polling, you know, above 15, 20 percent or whatever the, you know, the, the front runners are at this point, as we think about how the candidates below them might break through, it just seems like this, the what, what we're talking about here is kind of closed off a um, a path for them in a way. It, 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 and now it's opened other ones, obviously, but there, there's no there's no real way to envision someone like taking off in just in Iowa and then becoming a bigger thing because of uh, off off the strength of that right it's if if someone starts to break out and take off it's going to, they're going to be doing it everywhere at once it's not going to be because they they shook every hand in Iowa the 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 weekend before it just seems to be kind of the way this this like nationalized political 
uh, campaigning seems to be going. Right. And that's borne out by the Iowans that I talked to last weekend who said that they can't turn off MSNBC or CNN. That's where people are getting their news. They're not getting their news on local television. Um, they're, they're, they're on Twitter. They're watching these people in- interact on Instagram and take those live questions. So it is. I think you're absolutely right in that nobody can sort of it's harder to build a stealth campaign. I don't want to say that it's impossible, but it's harder to build a stealth campaign on the ground in Iowa um, as opposed to just sort of exploding everywhere. Um, that's not to say, though, that she can't. Uh, and I think she acknowledges this. I mean, I Club was chart. able exactly. I was able to sit down with uh, with the senator on Sunday ask her a little bit about how, how she felt about being an underdog in this race, how her Midwestern times were, were going to help her sort of break out. And the way that she she sort of laughed off the idea, you know, saying, like, look, I understand that it's sort of just a joke that I can see Iowa from my porch. Um, that's sort of a good laugh line in the room. But beyond that, that she understands sort of the or she thinks that the messages that she's saying, the themes that she's talking about are the ones that that both are, are resonant to the people in Iowa, but also are uniquely uh, authentic to her and to her experience as a senator, talking about rural broadband, talking about the floods that both Minnesota and Iowa are having to deal with, talking about you know being being the candidate who wanted to be on the ag committee. Um, so I think that that's what she's hoping is going to work. That it's not just simply about regionalism or geography or where you're from, but that she's going to be able to connect with them in a way that is sort of uniquely Iowa, and that very much is up in the air as to whether or not that's actually going to be effective. Oh, yeah, that's going to be interesting to watch. I'm kind of, I'm curious to see. Uh, to what extent that that catches catches fire uh, over the next what we got eleven months eleven yeah. months to Iowa okay but even even Dave Lobsack who um, who I think was a little shocked to ca- take a question from a political reporter because he's somebody in the congressional halls who only likes to talk to local press but I he's the, the Iowa congressman excuse me yeah yeah the Iowa congressman and and so I told him I was like look I'm in Iowa this time so you've got a time in your backyard um, but even he was sort of acknowledging look like yes it's an advantage to to have spent some time here in the state. But at the end of the day, what every single person wants, and this is always borne out in the conversations I have with Democrats, is who's going to beat Donald Trump. And I think that Klobuchar's pitch is that being from the Midwest, winning in states that Donald Trump was able to flip in 2016 is a part of that. To me, the that's qu- interesting. The question you asked now is, is it more important to have a presence or, or a proximity to Iowa? Or is it, what, is it more valuable to have proximity to Iowa? Uh, or is it more valuable to have something of a regular gig on MSNBC, meaning you you show up doing hits, hit after hit after hit on MSNBC? Oof. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to answer. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a really good point. And then and then there's I mean there's like the the third lane the 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 O'Rourke how O'Rourke got here in the first place right, right? the he, Instagram Live lane yeah right. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, Charlie, you've been you've been kind of in, in in deep watching what O'Rourke's been up to on this this first week in the campaign trail with David Siders. Um, can can you tell tell us a little bit about what you thought so far? Well, I mean, I, I think it was a, a little rockier uh, behind the scenes than than most people knew. Um, but I think he kind of straightened it out, and, and he, sh- you know, if you if you focus on the positives of, of the launch, uh, you, you get to see what the promise of the O'Rourke campaign is. So we now have a pretty good idea what the downsides are. That you know, there's some areas where he's not really well versed in uh, in, in the policy uh, arena, and he's not great there. But what we um, and there is you know some. Uh, see the pants flying going on there. 
But on the other hand, there is an energy there. There's a charisma there. There is um, an authenticity there. And, and we've realized from the Trump election in 2016, authenticity is everything in uh, modern politics, or at least this age that we're in now. It is everything. Yeah, it is what enabled a man like Donald Trump to get elected. Whether you believe he's authentic or not, that is, he is authentically Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, this is something that... that to me, savvy politicians on both sides say they learned from the Donald Trump victory is you have to be authentically yourself. And that is the only thing that breaks through in, in this uh, modern political culture. To me, O'Rourke is showing that even as people laugh about him getting up on a coffee table counter or whatever he's doing, it is that energy uh, that he's bringing to uh, the playing field that really shows and is resonating with people. As Elena just made the point about uh, where, where did people go, you know, which... Uh, which event did they go to? They went to the one with, with Beto O'Rourke in Iowa, you know, uh, not the one with Klobuchar. Not to take anything away from maybe Klobuchar, but it's just that there's there's some sort of sparkle to the to O'Rourke at the moment uh, that he, you know, he, he, he grew, he generated in Texas, he honed it a little bit, and there is something about the way he campaigns that people really connect to. Well, and it's something about the way he campaigns that also gets people wanting to be involved. And that $6.1 million number is is staggering in that that's, that's the basis of an entire... I mean, you, like, senators spend years trying to build up that kind of a war chest in preparation for this, and he was able to do it in one day. And if you can sustain that kind of small-dollar grassroots energy, as we saw in the 2018 House, House elections, that can take you so, so far. And sort of those stumbles... Um, although um, in the long term, something he's definitely got to sort of shake out and figure out, those, those people who have sort of been inspired by him and are watching him, if they keep giving to him, bitter work's not going away for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same thing with Bernie Sanders. Exactly. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, plenty to watch. Elena, thank you so much for coming in to talk to us about it. Of course. Glad to be back from Iowa. Moving on to our next data point. That number is 17. 17 House committees have requested... So far, unsuccessfully, documents and witnesses from the Trump White House on a variety of matters. And in many cases, the White House hasn't even acknowledged the request. Here to talk about it, we have Anita Kumar from our White House team. Hello. Hi. Thanks thank for you having so much. me back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for coming in. Anita, you've done the reporting on this. Uh, House Democrats, newly empowered, newly in the majority, uh, very, very excited about digging in on all manner of investigations into things that have gone on at the Trump White House for the past two years. Uh, but tell us about what's happening with these requests so far and uh, the responses and, and how unusual this is or not. Well, it's never unusual for a president not to want to turn over <laughs> documents and send witnesses. So let's be clear about that. No one's ever excited about that, I don't think. But what's different, we found, is that generally it's like a little bit of a dance. It's a negotiation. You know, the White House might send a letter back saying, thank you so much for asking for these documents. Maybe we can work on, I know, really nice. Maybe we can work on what day we can really get these to you or what documents we can really get to you. So it's the beginning of a negotiation back and forth between Congress and the White House. We're not finding that this time. What we're finding is the deadlines are coming and going and the White House isn't even sending the customary polite letter back that says, uh, we got your request and we're looking at it. Um, you know, to be clear, sometimes they're picking up the phone and calling someone or sending an email. But in the past few administrations, I've found talking to people that have worked um, for Clinton, 
W. Bush, George W. Bush, and Obama, generally it's that there's a negotiation beginning. And so sort of the bottom line is it feels like the president, at least from the White House, not from the agencies, is saying, I don't really want to negotiate. You know, he's starting out already not wanting to negotiate. So what happens next year? What 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 recourse do do House Democrats have? So House Democrats will go back and forth. They'll send more letters. I think you saw on the one that got a lot of attention about the security clearances. So this is about uh, the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and whether he had a proper security clearance and whether he should have gotten that security clearance. I think the House Oversight Committee has sent three letters already. So what you'll see is the House is sending multiple letters asking for the same thing. Well, you didn't respond to us last time. We're asking again. Eventually, they'll get tired of doing that, and they'll have to make the decision on whether they want to use their power of subpoena. So the House can subpoena. The House Democrats can subpoena. Um, They couldn't do that when they were in the minority. Now they're in the majority. They can. And they will do that. It's just the question of whether they want to do that on all these investigations. There's so many of them. They sort of have to pick and choose. Now the House, uh, sorry, the White House could still ignore the subpoena. Um, And then it goes to court, right? Well, then the House has to vote someone in contempt. So remember back uh, when President Obama was president, Eric Holder was famously, you know, held in contempt. They voted him in contempt. And basically all that does is it sends the whole case to to court. Okay. And then they duke it out. And, you know, that court case with Eric Holder is still going on. So it takes forever (laughs) for them to get resolved. So you can feel the White House saying, you know, people saying, you know. Just take us to court and let us let's figure it out later. Right. Yeah. So in ter- I mean, is so that they it sounds like House Democrats have some recourse. They have levers they can pull. But in terms of actually investigating the things that they want to investigate, uh, th- there's not much they can do to accelerate that process if the White House isn't interested in cooperating. Yeah, I think the bottom line here is it's for all those splashy headlines we saw where, you know, they're asking for this, that and the other. It's going to take forever that for them to get that even into next year or even beyond the election. The next election. So, Charlie, is this is this like is this the White House kind of closing its eyes and plugging its ears and pretending that the midterms didn't happen and that there isn't divided government and they don't have to deal with this? Or is this is this actually, you know, a, a political strategy heading into 2020? Oh, I, I think it's strategic. I don't think it's them pretending it hasn't happened at all. I mean, I think from the from that evening when they lost uh, and badly when Republicans lost across the board, um, it hasn't been a, 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 a it, it wasn't an exercise in denial. It was a sort of uh, acknowledgement that, OK, you know, it wasn't a great night, but we won some races and we're moving on. Uh, it was almost as if it didn't matter to fire Jeff Sessions. <laughs> it, it, exactly. It was not like 2006 when it was not like 2010 when in two, or 2006 when you had a Republican president acknowledge, yeah, we just got our butts kicked and maybe we need to rethink some things. Or 2010 when a Democratic president said, yeah, maybe we just got our butts handed to what, us. What was it that Obama said? Shellacking? Shellacking. The, yeah. And then uh, what was what was Bush's term? The thumping. Uh, the thumping. thumping. So either way, both acknowledge. And I mean, that's typically the way things happen. You, you know, when, when you get a uh, resounding result like that. But uh, in, in the Trump administration's case, uh, the, the response was very unusual in that they didn't care and, and they don't. They've, all, they've never been a majority-oriented administration. They didn't win with a majority of the vote. They don't govern with a majority of the vote in mind. And if they win re-election, it will not be with a majority of the vote. So uh, they don't operate like typical administrations. Even administrations like Bill Clinton, for example, in the 1990s, he never won a majority of the vote, but he always governed with a majority in mind. That was his aspiration. 
I, I don't believe that's the aspiration in the Trump administration's case. Uh, they, the base is everything and they think they can win with their base. So they never deviate from strategy. And in this case here, I think it's just the latest example of we're going to do what we want. We don't care. Uh, uh, we're not going to acknowledge the results uh, because we, we don't care. And we're also not going to acknowledge the request from Congress because, again, we don't care. Uh, and I think uh, they're not going to respond to subpoenas because, again, we don't care. And uh, we're, not, we're not intimidated by the consequences at all. And that is the, the governance style. I've been talking to some people who are advising the White House, advising President Trump on what to do, and they think this is going to work to their benefit, that he's going to be seen as a fighter. You know, that's why they supporters elected him. And that's what he's been trying to show the last two years is that he's fighting Congress. He's fighting everyone he needs to fight. And they're going to love this. They're going to eat it up, his supporters. Um, this is the way to go. That's a great point. Where do, what does he lose from from following this? He does not lose a single one of his voters. Not not a single one. That's a good point. Anita, it, it, obviously the, the the main fight here, we're talking about congressional Democrats on one side, the Trump administration on the other. But it occurs to me, I mean, it seems like how how different committee chairmen and, and investigators decide to handle this in, in, intransigence and lack of cooperation, uh, cooperation on, on a few issues from the, this seems like it, it has the potential to set off some fighting among House Democrats as well about exactly how how to respond and how aggressively uh, to to respond to some of this stuff, and that that's kind of been an emerging theme of the their young majority so far. It's just trying to figure out exactly how to handle this and how quickly they want to push really hard versus letting things run a little bit at first. Yeah, and you know the speaker Nancy Pelosi, she's got to have a hand in this, but she's kind of letting all the chair men and women do their thing. What hasn't really gotten a lot of attention is nearly every House committee now is investigating the Trump administration wow. for something, and we tend to think it's like tax returns and and Vladimir Putin but there's tons of other stuff there's a lot of policy so it's it, they're investigating for things that we've heard about but you know maybe aren't thinking about today like the family separation policy on the border so all of those committees need to decide as you said how they want to do this do they send 10 letters before they issue a subpoena do they even issue a subpoena they'll all have to decide the the thing about it is if you look at all of those investigations they can't all issue subpoenas. It's just not practical that that all those subpoenas will be issues, that everybody's going to be held in contempt. So they have to pick and choose. And that's where the leadership comes in, House leadership. Mm, that's going to be really interesting to watch. Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, it's it's not just the White House, right? It's hitting every you know agency and department, right? They're, they're looking into stuff about the census with the Commerce Department. They're, there's Homeland Security. There's Health and Human Services is also kind of wrapped up in the, the child separation stuff. There's It's uh, touching every... Yeah, it's actually more requests have been sent to federal agencies and departments than the White House. So the White House is, you know, a handful of things that are the big things that we hear about Vladimir Putin, the security clearances, um, things like that. Um, but most of them are sent to the agencies and the departments. And just, just to be clear, the agencies and departments are... They're not getting they're not giving everything, but they are doing these customary letters. They see, are being much player. And there's a reason for that. They rely on Congress for their funding. <laughs> they rely on Congress for, uh, you know, pr other practical things that they I, they need. And so you can see cabinet secretaries, you know, writing back these very polite letters. Now, they may not give them what they want, but they are saying, let's negotiate. So it's very telling. There's a there's a very distinct pattern between the White House and, and the agencies. 
All right. Well, we'll keep a close eye on that. Anita, thank you so much for coming in sure, to thanks. tell us about it. Sure. Thanks for having me. And Charlie, thank you as always for chiming in this week. Thanks for having me, Scott. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. Our producer is Michaela Rodriguez. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.